Welcome everyone to another great episode of the Do Better Dev Show. Today we have a guest who's not only just a guest, but is an expert speaker who's done many talks. And uh, this is their nth time on the episode. His name is also Nathan. That's why it says nth time. Mm -hmm. um, welcome, Nathan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Uh, I've done at least, at least more than one talk, yes. and they were all in linear time. So I feel comfortable with that introduction. Thank yes. you. Of course, we, we need to make sure you know that your recognitions are recognized. Yes, yes. Uh, actually, that just reminded me. I saw, sent you that clip from Fireship explaining how to use basically Golang style returns from async await in JavaScript. And then I went back and found the gist I wrote for that with, I make a video called like using, it was like, uh, promises or async await does not replace promises or something like right, that yeah. and uh <laughs> it was five years ago and i was like man this guy i, I think fireship is either like a low-key fan <laughs> or we have shared parts of their, our brain because we've named too many things way too similar without either him knowing about my existence or me knowing about his and it'd be weird if he was one of the like 10 people that have seen my videos so i just assume at this point we share some brain cells Maybe, yeah. Or maybe he's just a big fan. If you are, you're probably listening to this. Say what's up in yeah. our comments somewhere. Yeah, that would be that would be wild. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Um, content creator of the year, according to a state of JavaScript survey. Wow. That would be that'd be something else. That would be enough to maybe make me make a video for the first time in three years. I'd be like, hey, shout out, Fireship. Thanks for the shout out. Wow. Huge. Peace. Stakes are high here. Huge stakes. Wow. So, Fireship, if you could just, like, get that going, <laughs> friends of the show, uh, yeah. that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a good parasocial relationship I've got going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, he's got a lot of uh, interesting videos. And wow. we were just chatting before recording here about a video that I sent you that we both... Uh, I don't know if we both thought it was interesting. It was strange. It was strange. Uh, I've put it down as cool. And it's a video called Harder Drives, um, which I, it's a 30-minute video, so I can't explain it all, and I don't want to explain it all because we kind of ruined the fun. But if the idea of dif finding difficult ways to store data sounds interesting to you, and then this might be for you. And if that doesn't intrigue you enough, imagine using thousands of Tetris emulators as block storage. Yeah. If that doesn't work for you, then it's not a video for you, but it was absolutely a video for me, and I loved it. Yeah. Even if you were at home and you looked at your COVID-19 test, and you were like, you know, it'd be pretty cool if I could use the electronic for something, this video is for you. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Or if you love juggling chainsaws. That too. And... It won't take you long to figure out why we've said that. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, check out the video if you want, or don't. Or don't, that's true. It is a free country, hopefully, wherever you're listening it in. I hope so. Uh, but at least the one we're publishing it in. Yeah, it we're is. worldwide. Wow. Technically, the internet, for the most part, it maybe not in those free countries, though. So I guess it might be self-selecting. Yeah, but if you're using proxy or something to listen to this, that's commitment. And Heck yeah. Love you. Yeah, thanks, yeah. For, thanks for being one of the... 30-ish that probably listened to this. Right. That number's gone up a little bit. Very exciting. Huge. Consistent gains. 
Yeah, it, it never goes down. Yeah, crazy with the fact that you invite a new guest on every week at, or every two weeks or every month uh, that we record, that you record, and, uh, and you still get consistent viewers. <laughs> Wild. Uh, another thing. Bar- another one. Another one. Bard, which is the new chat GPT-like right. thing from Google. I can't say anything about it because uh, it's not really publicly available yet. Yeah. But... I'm bringing this up because I thought it was funny. I had a conversation with my girlfriend because I introduced her like three days ago to ChatGPT. She didn't know about it. So I just pulled it up and showed it to her and was just like, just start typing things to it. And she wasn't very impressed. And then I showed her the first minute and a half of AI Gets Creative by MKBHD where the uh, ChatGPT writes the script for the first minute of the video. And she was just like, whoa. And so now she's been using it for work a little bit, like helping her draft emails and coming up with ideas. Wow. Uh, and so anyway, she's having a great time with it. Wow. But I told her. She can't fall in love. No, I hope not. That would be okay. unfortunate. She did tell me that ChatGPT is a guy and we've named him Charles. So this oh. is already getting uncomfortably close to her. Yeah. Uh, but hey, you know what? It's all going to happen eventually. What It is what it is. That's true. We can't stop it. S- such is life. Such is life. That's right. So <laughs> um, we uh, were having this conversation after I told her about this and how Google a while ago had that conference where they showed off the very human-like um, like booking of a hair cut or something and people were just freaked out and they were like nope not having that (laughs) and so i'm like i'm telling you google's got stuff ready but they've been essentially not putting it out because people haven't been ready to culturally accept it and i guarantee you pretty soon now that this has been out for a while and people are getting very excited google's gonna be like okay fine here's our version (laughs) and then within 24 hours of me having said that which was just good timing because like ChatGPT has been out for a couple months now. Uh, but it was just like the nature of the couple of days after I showed it to her, which meant it was top of mind for both of us that we were talking about it. And then later that like afternoon or the next morning, I find an article that's just like, oh, Google launches competitor to ChatGPT. I was like, I told you. <laughs> One of the 14 listening devices in your house, listen to it. And we're just like, yeah, you know what? They're ready. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, assess the the cultural vibes around this, and it just listens to see are people happy about that idea? Sound good? Oh, okay. Yeah, the release management is completely AI too. There's no human actually releasing these. No, no person in the loop. No, no, no. Yeah, it's just <laughs> Tim Cook, just chilling, waiting to see what happens next, and he's just like, oh, this looks interesting. He messages, uh, was it Sun Sundar? I guess. Is yes. the yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's just like, should I release it? Oh, oh, it's already out. Whoopsie. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Can't do anything. Yeah. But yeah, but Google does this annoying thing, right? Like, ChatGPT, when they announce, they're like, here's the product, go play with it. Google's like, no, 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 we, we do foreplay. We tell you, and y'all gotta wait. Yeah. Whoopsie, we leaked everything about the Pixel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did you think? Yeah. You like it? Maybe tell us what you don't like? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But that is really cool. Yes, I thought it was cool. Yeah. Or was it interesting? No, it was mostly cool. Oh, okay. I can't say it's interesting because I don't know what it is yet. What's well, true? It might be good. It might not be good. Uh, this one's a very strange little one-off. Uh, but EQ Bank 
for a while was saying like, hey, get a card. And uh, it was free card and it allows you to have some benefits. So I was like, okay, whatever. I've been using EQBank for a long time. I don't think I need a card, but cool. So I accepted the card, had it sent to me, and then there was delayed. So like they sent me an email saying, sorry for the delay, here's $5. Oh. And so I just got $5 for this card I don't need. So that's pretty cool. Wow. But even better is once the car, card arrived, the unboxing experience was 10 out of 10. So you know how like the Wealth Simple experience from the beginning to end was just like a, a negative experience? Like yeah. it started out like the idea was a, a good 7 and then it just dropped down to about a 2.5 by the time you received it. Uh, this was the opposite. I was expecting almost nothing. And then the card shows up. It looks like a nice little yellow card. Interesting. But the box itself, you like pull a tab on the bottom and then the card pops out the top like one of those wow. fancy wallets, except it was just cardboard and that's how they delivered it to you. It was pretty cool. So wow. respect EQ Bank. And if anyone does no idea what I'm talking about, EQ Bank's a, a like bank based in Quebec, I think. Uh, and they usually have high... Uh, interest rates for high interest savings accounts as far as Canada goes. So yes. that's why I have one. Yep. And they, yeah, their website is just cute. Their what is? Website is oh, it's cute. Yeah, just little, yeah. Yeah. Very I, basic and kind of colorful. Yeah. It's a very happy, happy product. Yeah. There was a time when no one gave the interest rates they are giving. Uh, now everyone's sort of better. So yeah. Yeah. Well, Tangerine is usually pushing against that, but. I don't know. They do a lot of promotional rates these days. Yeah. So it's like everybody's on a one except for the new sign-ups. They get six months at like four and a half, and you're like, bro, can I get like a two? And they're like, nah, you're on a one. Yeah. But your friend that you helped sign up, they get a four. <laughs> so, yeah. Lost leaders. Once you get it, just delete your account. Wait a year. And then you can just do it Uninstall. Again. Uninstall. That's what I did with Tangerine. I got there's some I think like sign on whatever uh -huh. direct deposit thing. Yeah. Like two three years ago, and then I like once I got the benefit, I was like, yeah, I don't really need this account. It's another overhead. Deleted it, and then I signed up again another time this November because they're like, if you put money with us in a savings account until March, we'll give you like four percent interest. Uh huh. I was like, sure, and I signed up, and they gave me the interest. That's wild. So, I'm just a sucker actually keeping my accounts around. Yeah. April, that account's getting deleted. <laughs> <laughs> Waiting for two more years. Wow. <laughs> um, I'm sure they have some sort of threshold or whatever, but I expected fully that when I try to re-sign it, they'll be like, no, you were a previous customer, screw off. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe someone forgot to add that layer to the API, and I'm maybe. happy about it. Wow. Yes. Hmm. Pro tip. Yeah, because I, I also wanted to do that because I hated the sneaky tactic they did on the, the debit card. Where they're like, oh, it's Visa debit, and you'll get like tons of cash back. Uh -huh. But all merchants in Canada have uh, the agreement that everything goes through Intrac first. So on Intrac, you don't get that sweet cash back. You only get it on Visa debit, which you don't use unless you're online shopping. Right. So I could have the Tangerine card go and running around stores and be like, yes, and then find out I didn't get the cash back I thought I was going to get. I see. Yes. So well, that didn't happen that. to my girlfriend who has uh, a lot of online shopping and no in-person. Because I, I asked her, I was like, yo, Gan was saying that this is kind of like an issue. Are you sure you're going to get this cash back that you think you're getting? Mm -hmm. And uh, turns out, she, you know what? She did. Because she yeah. just online? Yeah, just online. Wow. Things kept showing up. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I was like, you're going to be in trouble if you don't get this back. You're just shopping <laughs> for no reason. 
<laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, little bank tangent, but mm-hmm. those those be those be the banks. Um, all right, a few actually interesting things. These ones are all coding related, so yeah. on topic for anyone who's been uh, hitting the fifteen second button waiting for us to get past the Canadian banking chat. Uh, <laughs> uh, at work, I have finally gotten the chance to do some sort of um, automated type generation, uh, which I've heard about for a few years, but never actually had a, a chance where it made sense. And so we have uh, open API spec for like automatic documentation um, for our server. And that means that I can use API TypeScript, which is an NPM package, to basically run over that JSON that you get back from the API spec, and then it converts it into TypeScript types. And with like three lines of code, you've now imported that uh, either schema, like the component. So you can say like, this is what a user looks like. And you just import it with a couple lines, and now you've got a full user object. And then you can say like, um, grab all the information about this endpoint, and then it'll tell you on that endpoint, you can use uh, these methods, these are the uh, things you need to pass to those different methods, these are the, uh, this is the shape of the body, this is the shape of the response, this is the shape of the error. It is super rad. Wow. So there's no longer a need to duplicate everything uh, across the front end and the back end, and that means that we'll actually have docs that are up to date because the front end needs those types to be correct. And also, because of the way I wrote it, uh, it gets the docs from the remote version, so like the version that's been last merged and deployed onto our trunk branch, which means that you have to ship the backend change first, or at least merge it into the trunk branch, not to production necessarily, but at least into the development environment before you can then start building on it on the front end, which encourages some better behavior because all like from end to end, it's under half an hour to do that. So it's like if you were pushing the change up and you waited for it to build and then it deployed and then you you merged it immediately, waited for it to build again and deployed that whole process, it's not very long. So you can still work on the front end a little bit, but it means that you actually get your change in before you depend on it, which is good, I think. Uh, But it's remarkably exciting because the amount of time that people were worried about spending on manually writing out these types and the crap that we have to already like val- try to validate responses and things from the from the server, uh, it should save us a ton of time because I was very pleased with the result where it's yeah you basically just say like I'm going to use this endpoint it says here's everything you need to know I'm like wow. amazing is this a, is there a name of a library yeah it's good. it's just a npm package called Open API TypeScript wow um, and there's also a uh, another library called Open API TypeScript Fetch that generates an SDK. So you can then use a fetch API to do like, you know, uh, you create a client and then dot get users or whatever. And it will then get all the users for you and you'll have types in the response. You can just do chaining instead of, uh, what we're using React Query, so it didn't really make sense to try to overhaul what we're doing. Uh, but all we really care about are the types. And then what was amazing was that I uh, borrowed from the open API fetch library. I went to their GitHub, which is open source, and then just grabbed some of their generics that they use to make the types more accessible. And so then you can just say like, here's the path I'm going to use. I'll store that in like user's path. And then just pass in to like 
they called it op get response. You just pass it in, that's a generic that automatically does the lookup to like the get endpoint and then the um, response body and then application JSON and does all that for you. So that then all you have to worry about is passing in the right path and then pass it to the generic and the generic gives you back the body. And then from there, we can just use the use query uh, types, which are from React Query, pass those in, and it's like, like I said, three lines of code, and you've now got a fully typed response, error, payload, everything. So Damn. amazing. I'm very excited about it. But your server needs to be like open API compliant. Yeah, for this, it needs to be open API spec. Uh, yeah. There might be other standards that have libraries for them, but ours was basically yeah, open API, and then there's some libraries that did this for you automatically. Nice. So I'm pretty stoked on that. Uh, I sent a very excited message and was impressed with the response from the team because normally nobody cares. <laughs> like, they might give some thumbs up and behind the scenes they're excited, but people don't really show it. But uh, no, people were pretty hyped about this. There was a couple people on the team that have been wanting this for a while. So the fact that it actually worked was a surprise to me. And then an even more pleasant surprise was that people were excited about it. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, so I recommend checking it out. Uh, related to that is a video I watched in order to learn more about how the generics I was borrowing from this open API, or sorry, open source code, uh, how they were working. Um, there's a guy who makes TypeScript videos um, and Rust videos called uh, Matt Pocock, and he has 10 things about ty TypeScript generics. I actually just watched one at a time because it was too much information. Uh, but he has it in little sections, which is nice. And it didn't, it didn't teach me quite as much as I was hoping, but I think I learned probably out of the 10, I learned out of like six or seven of them, something. So it was pretty good. Um, and uh, I recommend it. If you're not super familiar with generics, generics are pretty confusing. They're very terse. And it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like some math stuff where I look at it, and once it's there, I'm like, oh, I get it. But doing it myself, I'm like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do next. <laughs> so uh, it's, yeah, basically like that for me. Um, and last thing, this one's an interesting slash frustrating. It's barely frustrating. Oh, no. But it's also kind of barely interesting. I just wanted to bring it up. There's, there's been a lot of drama this oh. week about, of all things, explicit return types in TypeScript. Wow. Crazy. How do you sleep at night? I know, right? But this has been <laughs> this has been ongoing for over a week of just people in the TypeScript content creator community uh, and the Primogen just argu <laughs> <laughs> arguing about whether or not you should use explicit return types. And I'm not going to wade into that. There's opinions on both sides. Uh, but it's wild how strong some people's opinions are on this because there are clearly some cases where providing an explicit return type might make things slightly worse and there are situations i would argue most of the time mm -hmm. where there's nothing wrong with an explicit return type and it probably makes it a bit easier to read but like neither of them in the land of typescript are useful enough to have like a multi-day argument back and forth over right because it's all a lie. Like, TypeScript isn't real. It's 
the way I've, I've started hearing people describe TypeScript as just the world's best linter. <laughs> yes. Like, it's not a real yeah. language. The types are fake. Uh, it's all imaginary. Um, it's all using duct typing anyway. So it, when you say, like, oh, I have, uh, I don't know, my string, but it extends string, if you just do a check... Or if you just say as, like, I'm just going to as this to a number. Now it's a number. Surprise. Like, the value hasn't changed. It's still going to be a string at runtime. But, like, you've now said it's something else. Or you can do a type guard. And you, if you write your type guard incorrectly, now it's typed as something else. Like, it's, it's all a lie. But it is helpful. So, anyway, int kind of interesting. But also, I got bored with the back and forth. So I can't recommend any of it unless you're curious. Uh... But I just couldn't talk about multiple TypeScript things and not mention the right. flavor of the week, which was arguing about explicit return types. Where is this happening? Where do our listeners go to see this drama? <clears throat> you can go to the Primogen right. or the Primetime, which is his second channel. I think he might have moved some of his content from that channel to his main channel because it picked up more steam than he was expecting as far as like this conversation kept being relevant for more than an afternoon, which is, I think is what he was more expecting. Uh, and then Theo, uh, which is like Theo.ping or th something. Maybe just search like TypeScript Theo. He's going to be the only one that comes up. Right. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a weird one to recommend because I saw a comment that I thought really explained it well because this matches how I feel about the, that channel, which is I don't know if I enjoy this channel because I sometimes learn things and oftentimes hate everything you're saying. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel about it. Like, right. he's a bit too strong on everything, where it's like, if you agree enough, you're like, okay, I see where you're coming from. And if you don't, you're just kind of like, bro, like, <laughs> chill. <laughs> this is way too hot of a take to be putting out and having, like, younger devs or, like, inexperienced people or just people who really like your opinions globbing onto them and being like, this is the way to do it. Because, yeah, very strong. Like, if you think any of the opinions on this show have been strong, just watch some Theo videos and you'll see, like, ah, oh, no. No, we're taking it easy. We're just, put yeah. Maybe that's why he's famous. Ah, he's not that semi-famous. That's not famous. He's not that famous. Oh. Nah. He's no fireship. <laughs> <laughs> this no. is really just a fireship appreciation <laughs> podcast. Yeah. If you host us, uh, talk about us on your show, we'll talk... We've already done our part, so... Yeah. Get on it, Fireship. That's right. Uh, okay, so this has gone way longer than I expected. Last recommendation, which is the wholesome recommendation. Um, this one, this one's kind of out there, but it's Il Mango, which is a YouTube channel. Uh, he, again, another thing that's just like, of course Nathan likes this, which is he does like these super big brain uh, Minecraft redstone machines so he'll do automations where it's like if the normal person who builds minecraft machines like oh this is a tree uh or it's called like a, a wood generator or whatever that like grows a tree and automatically explodes it and it'll be like oh this outputs i don't know like 10 10 blocks per minute or something i don't know what accurate numbers would be i'm just giving you the perspective here on like a ratio il mango's video will be like 60,000 logs per per hour wood tree or wood wood farm. You're just like, oh. And, and then you, he introduces it. He's like this German guy. 
uh, whose skin is this squirrel in a suit. So it's a, it's a good time. But anyway, super wholesome. Uh, and if you just like watching stuff, you're like, this is making me think I'm kind of interested, but also I don't do anything with this, which is a lot of my content right. that I yeah. consume. I'm not about to build AND gates and computers out of connects. I'm not building Lego digital clocks. I'm not building epoch timers out of gears using various tools. Uh, none of these things are things I'm actually going to do, and I'm not building factories in Minecraft. But I do enjoy watching them. Right. Someone else is living your dream. Someone else is juggling chainsaws when you can't. That's right. Yes. Yes. Cutting through the air like Cutting. butter. <laughs> <laughs> like a hot knife through butter. Wow. All right. But anyway, now that I have uh, oof, uh, like 24 minutes <laughs> of recommendations and we haven't even gotten to Kubernetes yet. You know what? This is going to be a multi-series. Kubernetes is too big to fit in one episode anyways. I don't know. We'll so, see. We'll see. But before that, my recommendations. Yeah, heck yeah. Tell me about it. All right. Uh, all right. I'll go. I'll cut through them like butter very quickly. Hey, no worries. Uh, Take time. I did. That's true. Yeah. Our listeners love us, right? <laughs> Please tell us. We need the validation. Um, yeah. So I'll start with the good because it has nothing to do with tech. Okay. Um, the good is The Last of Us and the third episode that came out. It's, uh, without giving any spoilers, it's a very dark part of the game, uh, which I always thought was sort of mildly unresolved, but it, because it's a smaller part of the game and has nothing, no real impact on the story, you like sort of write it off. You're like, whatever, it's sad and sort of grim, but whatever. Uh, in the show, they made it very wholesome. They made it, they changed that character story just enough that, again, it has no impact on the outcome or the way things are gonna unroll, uh, unfold. But, uh, but it was just a good episode. Like the whole episode you watch and you're like, I am happy it was here because if it if it was in the game, it would have been really boring element of the game. Uh, but as a TV show, it was very heartwarming. You're just like the character got redemption, and it's played played by Nick Offerman, who is like one of my all time faves. <laughs> I see. And uh, he just, I loved the character Bill that he played, or like the character Bill in the game because he's just like grumpy, angry person. And then he plays it, but with like a nicer side to him as well. I'm like. You know what? No one else could have pulled this role off. You're you're it. I am happy about this. So that's my good good recommendation. I'm still not recommending the entire show to people just because I've been burnt by too many things. So I'm gonna wait till the entire season comes out and then then make my like uh, judgment because so long they follow what happened in the game, it's gonna be a good end. I know it. It's gonna be great. But if they veered off too much because they were trying to like gouge that money out of people, no then it's going to be like Sony-no instead of Sony. Yeah. I see. Yes. I didn't uh, realize that Sony was involved, so I'm glad you explained that. Yes. The yes. Last of Us made by Sony, or like uh, the Naughty Dog, but Sony PlayStation exclusive. Ah. So they got the money. Hmm. Yeah. They did this whole like thing as well where the first Last of Us has now, it has three versions, where it originally came out for the PS3, then they remastered for the PS4, and now they've remastered for the PS5 with the engine from the second game. Um, and they released it just a few months before, a few weeks before the show. Mm -hmm. So, And they, as expected, very much saw a huge increase in the game purchases as the show came out. They we were like, ah, 
that's why you did it, you dicks. Um, so yeah, wasn't happy about that, but you know what? People are enjoying the game. It's just a remaster shouldn't be as expensive as a normal game. Uh, but they did that. They the third remaster of this game, just because it's in a different engine, is eighty dollars. Um, which one of our friends very strongly still backed on, and he's like, no, this is good. And then I don't know one of our friends who is more of a principles guy is like, no, this is garbage. I see. Well, I just know that somewhere uh, Todd Howard is saying, hold my beer. Uh, he's he's the head the, of um, game development at at uh, Bethesda. Oh. So they've done like eighty four different releases of Skyrim at this point. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So yeah, but that's the the good recommendation. Okay. Um, we'll we'll see what happens with the entire series. Um, interesting thing. Uh, I'm starting to look more into. Well, I was one of the things I was going to mention is the harder drive as well the, from the previous mm-hmm. uh, mention. Um, yeah, cool video. Definitely needed to Google a lot of terms, and but it was so interesting that my girlfriend brought me food. And I like put it on the side, being like, "Yeah, I'll just watch uh, a little bit before eating," and that's a big deal if you know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I will always prioritize food. What an endorsement! I know. Uh, I was halfway through. I was halfway through the um, the Tetris thing, and I was like, "I need to focus because I will not understand what's happening if I don't." Um, yeah, and then the other interesting thing that could be and will be frustrating, I'm sure, is Istio. So as I'm looking more into Kubernetes. I get the concept that because everything's running into its isolated containers, it's no real state. But because of that behavior, all of these tools and monitoring and uh, sidecar proxies that at least how they describe the product as, it's just there. It's like, oh, you have an app running? We're just going to run our little container next to you in the same pod or in the same namespace and just like sort of pull your container. I'm like, I kind of dislike that. I enjoyed the old school architecture of you have a bunch of binaries running at least in the same execution space. So everything has the same context. They read and then they push somewhere central and things work. But it seems like the new hot thing is there will be this Istio, at least for the networking, because that's what it's made for. And it'll just inject a whole bunch of little binaries all over the sidecars. And any network request coming out of a container now goes through Istio instead of going through Kubernetes or whatever. It'll go through Istio, then it'll go through Kubernetes. Which, I don't know, I'm sure it's some nanoseconds of extra added delay or whatever, which I don't particularly really care for. But I do dislike that there is now yet another layer that I'm like, something could go wrong there. Because they're going to try to make your life simple, something will go wrong because simple life is a lie and it doesn't exist. So yeah, so it's currently interesting because I'm looking at the architecture and I'm like, I understand it. I, I can see how that's useful. I understand why it's a CNCF graduated project, but I dislike it. And I am hoping it'll change my mind as I use it more over the next few months, years, who knows? Um, which leads me to frustrating. Okay. CNCF, the Cloud Native Cloud Foundation, something, Cloud Native Compute Foundation, something. Okay. Uh, they're the they're basically like this huge foundation that incu- incubates all these products. So before Kubernetes was a huge hotshot, they were an incubated product of the CNCF. Um, same with, I don't know, Temporal and anything really that is one of these like microservices uh, part of architecture and application, they all go through CNCF, including OpenShift. 
<laughs> but it's this thing where there's this now foundation, and I, 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 I wanted to understand more about it because they don't seem to have really any strong opinions or anything. Uh, they're just like, yeah, you build something, we'll incubate it, you get some whatever found funding for it, we get some credit that, yeah, whatever. And once you go through their curve, and if you're a CNCF graduated product, that means you're production ready, everyone's happy to use you, like etcd, you know, like big things like that. But I listened to the podcast uh, with the founder of it, and he was just like, yeah, we didn't want to like have a have something that prescribes things or like has the best effort thing. We're just like, yeah, everyone could be here, and so long you meet certain standards, you're graduated. Good job, which. I sort of dislike because in the world of million open source projects, even if most of them are past the incubation stage and somewhere in the middle of proving themselves, people are going to come across those things because they'll tag themselves as CNCF incubated or whatever and they get the inherited accreditation. And now you use it and they're maybe like five years down the road, like, now nah, we've been bankrupt, sorry, bye. Or, yeah, we're production ready, but now we need to find someone else to like host the product. Or, I don't know, it's just, I'm looking at the space and I'm trying to figure out certain workflows on how to execute certain things, and it seems like there's like 40 alternatives. Whereas in the good old days, there used to be five, there would be a nice blog post, like, you know, uh, one furniture technology versus other versus another, <laughs> something like that. You read or listen to it and you're like, okay, I get the pros and cons and stuff, and everything's good. But now everyone can just make a container app that just runs alongside other container apps, and there's like 40 of them, and I don't know what to pick, and I hate it. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Kubernetes, as flexible as you are, maybe lay down the law here and there a little bit, um, which, you know, would be cool. I would like, you know, some sort of best practice of like, this is tested, this is maybe some sort of graph of like top 10 and based on how much people love this thing. Like there's with programming languages and such. Hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's most of my frustration on the technologies and CNCF and Kubernetes. And for context, I've only been back in the Kubernetes space for like a week and a half. Yeah, I was about to say, I love that you emerged from this uh, not built here world of AWS, just like the old man shaking his fist at the cloud, just. Uh, yeah. Back in my day, back in my day, twenty <laughs> twenty twenty. <laughs> yeah, just before. Yeah. But yeah, just because since when I used Kubernetes there like three years ago, there wasn't this much nonsense. Within three years, it seems like the space has completely shifted on so much nonsense on orchestration and everything. Hmm. Uh, then I'm like, okay, I guess. There's a, just a lot more mess when you search around for things. Um, yeah, so that's like my frustration there. And then my final frustrating point is Pixel Buds. Oh. Yeah, they, one of the recent firmware updates. So Pixel Buds never, they could never connect to two devices at the same time. I think the Pro has that feature. Okay. But the regular one, you could pair it with multiple devices and you could disconnect from one, connect to another. And that worked. It no longer works. I don't know if you maybe just have your updates turned off or maybe you just haven't tested this in a while, but as of the last week and a half or so, uh, I can't connect my Pixel Bud to my MacBook or anything else. Or if I paired it with my MacBook, it takes 
forever to enter it back into pairing mode to connect to my phone um, because you could hold the button and it just not it won't just blink factory resetting it is too much pain and now I'm stuck now I have to like attend my work voice calls on my speaker uh, as opposed to you know just having a little little AirPod where I could just connect quickly between that and my phone so now I'm like considering buying the pro which I feel like is why they disabled this maybe and I'm just overall unhappy about this experience quite a bit at first I thought it was just me tried to google some like solutions for it and such till I came across an article on Android Authority saying oh yeah they did this then I went out to YouTube and many people were like yeah they did this and then I went to Reddit and they're like yep I was like oh okay I hmm. guess so yeah the last time I would have done that would have been Saturday maybe Sunday where I switched from my phone to my MacBook and then back to my phone and yeah all I had to do at least at that time was just Bluetooth click on the Pixel Buds and then when I was done on my computer I went to my phone and went to connected devices and clicked on Pixel Buds and they made their little overly loud pairing sound I was like, oh, now I'm back on my phone so there is an update option in your Pixel Buds on your phone. Do not click on that. Interesting. Yes. Okay. It will ruin the whole thing for you. Wow. And you will hate yourself. Wow. Well, that's good to know. Yes. You heard it here probably not first. Probably not. Unless you're listening to this on your Pixel Buds and you're like, oopsie. Uh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, now I know. Yeah. I will skip that. Yeah, so this episode is just about frustration on Kubernetes. Uh, come to the next one to learn about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, how about, okay, let's do at least some, uh, some like, high-level right. stuff. Because I've, I've got a long list of the different things in Kubernetes, talking about, um, for example, like, the cluster contains nodes, which contains pods, which contains containers, and I've got uh, services, which represent deployments, which, re which abstract over replica sets, which have replicas, which are pods, which have containers, like explaining all these different things, how persistent storage, as a, uh, for example, uh, Helm, secrets, config maps, all those things. But considering we are 40 minutes <laughs> in already, uh, yeah, let's do like high level what is Kubernetes and what problem does it solve? Those are my first two notes. Yes. So we did an episode a while ago, uh, what is virtualization or something like that. And in that episode, we talked about Docker. Uh, barely know her. Barely. Hey. And, <laughs> and that is essentially, um, it's essentially the meme, which is how Docker was made, which is it works on my machine, then we'll ship your machine. Mm -hmm. That's how Docker was yeah. born. Yeah. Uh, it's the idea of taking a small um, container, which kind of represents like a virtualized environment, uh, like a minimal set of operating system resources and things that it basically knows how to proxy to the lower, uh, the host that it's running on. And if you want more details, Gan explained it very well in that episode. episode yeah. Uh, so yeah, you can search for that one. But the general idea is you end up with these Docker containers that you can run individually. Sometimes you want to network them, and locally you can do something with like Docker Compose, creates a little container network, expose ports, they can talk to each other. Nice, nice, nice. But what if you have 
microservices. Wow. You have more than one thing, and you don't no longer want to bother with like this one needs to scale up, this one can scale down because no one's really using it. I need them to talk to each other. How do I get these pods or not pods in that case? How do I get these containers to communicate? How do I represent these things? It becomes a very involved process of managing all these different uh, containerized uh, applications. And so you end up with something like Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is a container orchestration tool that effectively wraps all those things up and handles a bunch of it for you. And then you communicate indirectly with the containers via the kube CLI, which yeah. is exposing a few different ways, mainly with like uh, kubectl or kubectl, depending on who you talk to, uh, and the like control plane API. So yeah. those are the, the two big ones. And uh, you'll see those abstracted into uh, actual hardware layers and things through the cloud providers like in AWS, that'd be EKS. So in this episode, maybe, but certainly in a in-depth episode, I'll end up saying a lot about EKS because that's what we're using at work and that's what I'm most familiar with. But high level, that's kind of what it is. Yeah, and if, you are, if, been, if you've been in the industry long enough to remember Docker Swarm. Oh uh, yeah. Pause the episode for a minute, minute of silence, RIP, F, F to Docker Swarm. Um, but yes, that's essentially what Kubernetes killed immediately. Yeah, and Kubernetes is from Google, right? Think so. I'm pretty sure they made it. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah, never actually looked. Oh, okay. I just know, yeah, I guess that's why GCP was like hot and shot about it when it first came out. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's good. Use it. Yeah. I was Googling. I was, well, I was searching up if Google made Kubernetes. Oh. Oh, well, it suggested why did Google make Kubernetes, so I guess that means yes. Uh, the first result, what is Kubernetes from Google Cloud? How Kubernetes came to be? Yeah, Google Cloud is the birthplace of Kubernetes. Originally wow. developed at Google and released as open source way back in 2014. Wow. What a time to be alive. Oh, my God. That was before we had... ECMAScript 6, before we had arrow functions, we had, uh, we were still using VAR, we were using uh, like uh, Grunt and Bower, Bower tried to be a thing for a little bit, this was a different time. It was a different time. People probably were still making Ruby on Rails apps, I yeah. know I was. I hadn't started my first job yet, Oh. and when I did like a year after that, Docker was experimental and a hot thing still, yeah. relatively. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So it was. Uh, it goes way back. But anyway, yeah. So it solves that problem. Uh, pretty much, that's the extent of like what I have to say about high level, I guess. But yeah, it's like, just an orchestrator. It's just a puppet. No, no, shouldn't say puppet because that's another tool that could confuse things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just pulls the strings. It just goes around being like, yeah, I got you, bro. You just tell me how you want these containers and I'll, I'll figure out the rest. So I guess this is something that could take up some discussion time. It probably wouldn't make sense in an in-depth uh, conversation about Kubernetes. But that's like, what sort of applications demand this sort of environment? Because, uh, for example... Um, we have these two clusters at work. One of them, it makes sense that it's in Kubernetes. The other one should probably just be running on EC2. Oh. Uh, and so one of them is Argo workflows. And so those are 
these individual little tasks that need to be run, scheduled uh, with a lot of either cron jobs or they're event-based and they get triggered, they spin up and then they die. Uh, you can kind of think of them as lambda functions. If we actually wrote things that were efficient, they could probably be lambda functions, but these are too long and too heavy. So they don't fit into the requirements for those. Uh, but those are very ephemeral. It's useful to have the ability to scale up and down. We have this other cluster where we have one thing that runs on there, which is our web app. So we have a, a Flask server and our React app. And so in that case, it makes no sense. Like, you just need some way of serving a static website and some way of serving an API. If that is your situation, then Kubernetes makes no sense. You don't really need that. Uh, maybe if you want, like, a little bit of auto-scaling, but realistically at that point, just use auto-scaling groups directly if you're on AWS or, or whatever. Yeah. Have some way of uh, the, some of the triggers set up for either step functions or whatever that'll say, hey, the CPU's getting high, create another node in the in the auto-scaling group, or in that case, I guess it's just an instance in the auto-scaling group, and uh, that way we can serve some more traffic. And then when it's getting below 15%, we drop them back down. Like, these things are solved problems. You don't need Kubernetes for just things like auto-scaling. But in a what world- What if I'm multi-cloud? Uh, yeah, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> if you're multi-cloud and you actually need it, you know you need it. Uh, you don't need to be asking, do I need Kubernetes? But the, the world of Kubernetes is really built for microservices. Uh, yeah, you gotta, nobody can see, but there's a very relevant uh, action that happens when we say microservices um, based on our previous coworkers. Uh, I don't know, behavior. Uh, yes. Yeah, he had these weird hand gestures whenever he would do say microservices. So we just we and keep he doing it. saying it. Yeah, he said it a lot. So yeah. we just keep, <laughs> keep doing it. Uh, just kind of waving your hands in the air. Mm -hmm. But uh, anyway, the, the point is you have these smaller applications. They need to work together to serve the uh, complete functionality of your application, whatever that is. And so the typical examples are things like, oh, we have a, a login flow, or we have like an onboarding flow, something like that, like the ones that I've heard from you know, Netflix when they were first talking about using microservices. Things that can kind of be decoupled should, if one of them goes down, you don't want like your shopping cart to go down at the same time just because your uh, like marketing website is down or whatever. You want to decouple these things. Maybe you want different teams working on them, uh, different, write them in different languages. <clears throat> the point is, when you want these things managed individually and scaled individually, uh, it can be useful to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna run these in Docker containers for whatever reason you've determined that that's a good idea, and it would be nice if they could communicate clear, cleanly without having to use the internet, uh, meaning that they can just communicate directly over a private internal network. That's kind of this one of the benefits of being in a uh, Kubernetes cluster is that you get unique IPs for every single pod so they can communicate with each other and then those are wrapped in an abstraction that allows you to say like this is where my uh, particular service lives and then you can contact that and if you have your ingresses or whatever they can expose that to the internet where appropriate but the main thing is that you don't have to do this hop out to the public internet just to contact some other service so your latency stays nice and low and uh, things can scale up and down independently. So it does add a lot of complexity, 
and that's why if you just have a simple web server, then probably not what you need. Static React website with a, a Flask backend doesn't really need to be on Kubernetes. Uh, but in more involved situations, I guess it can be. Um, frankly, every company I've worked at has just used Kubernetes pretty much. Uh, I don't even remember what we were actually using on OpenShift, but... It's Kubernetes under the hood. Basically. Okay, yeah, that's... Yeah, I never really got into it when we were there, but the the previous company, like my first company, they were all using... Uh, must have been Kubernetes or something. Everything was, was running in Docker containers anyway. And then... Uh, at Telmedic, absolutely everything was running on Kubernetes, and that was like 30 different services, and and now at Archera. So I haven't even seen the pain points where it's like, oh, we have 30 services. It would be nice to have Kubernetes. I'm just in theory imagining <laughs> that this must be a difficult problem, um, but I've just seen the end result because it seems like the assumption is I'm a solutions architect, and as a result, we should use Kubernetes. Of course. It's the... In, it's the infrastructure equivalent of Redis. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, it, it goes without saying. Yeah. You just, yeah. If anyone's like, oh, where do you host it? Of course, Kubernetes, you idiot. <laughs> so stupid. Yeah. Works on-prem, works on the cloud, works in your mom's basement, wherever you need it to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that is actually a good point. You can run it locally as well. You can yeah. run Kubernetes locally on your machine. You can have your own little container network, play with things, uh, see how it works. You don't need to be paying AWS to run it on EC2 or whatever. Uh, the abstractions work whether the um, instances or nodes or whatever you want to call them are virtualized or if they are physical. So it doesn't actually care. Um, everything just will continue to work, but you can play with like, oh, can I get these pods to talk to each other? Can I ping one from the other? Uh, if I want to run a, if you, you just want to run an API on there, can you get your Docker container running in the cluster and then get do stuff? Uh, it, it is interesting as a learning problem. Yeah. Um, but I think if we're talking at the high level, I will jump to maybe some of the other like tools and wrappers. So yeah. first off, probably makes sense to go to uh, Helm. Oof, okay, yeah. So first off, because I've been talking for 99% of this episode, mm. do you have anything to say initially about Helm? I, it, it seems like it's one of those products that you can't live without and can't live with it. Uh, but it seems like it's just a nice abstraction on, it's a templating service. You add whatever your Kubernetes definitions would look like, you, they're just a template now. And you can version those templates and uh, you can change different values based on your environments. So avoid some duplication, but I don't know, I feel like that should be in Kubernetes, at least from what I've seen so far. Because um, that's what Docker composed it. You could just pass in a bunch of arguments and such. You could templatize some things. And based on the environment, it executed differently. But it's not the thing with communities. Yes. Know. So I, I could have a incorrect impression of Helm. But my impression of Helm is that it's more like a way of... Um, it's kind of... It, it's basically a way of giving all of your configuration a version. So you have a bunch of different 
Kubernetes configuration files. And especially if you are providing this as a uh, downloadable Helm chart, then it's useful to be able to say, this is a bunch of configuration. We expose these values that we allow you to pass in to make changes to. And this is a versioned configuration. Uh, at, you know, app version whatever, version 1.1, here it is. And it gives you, when you install that Helm chart, it'll install your uh, service account, it'll install the secrets, it'll install the, um, if it needs ingress, or like whatever's going in there, it ships it all together. And then when they make a change, it's not like you have to go in and say, they, they don't release like a doc that says, uh, as, as this um, publicly available service, it doesn't say like, all right, you need to go in and update your uh, secrets configuration and your service account and um, your replicas to look like this. Instead, it's just like we've built a new image or whatever, and now it's 1.2, and you can update your Helm chart to 1.2 and install it, and uh, everything collectively upgrades together. So it's, uh, yeah, way of versioning a collection of Kubernetes um, configuration. At least that's how I think of it. Uh, we use a bunch of Helm charts, as I mentioned in a previous episode, for different applications. So we have some Helm charts from, or at least one. Yeah, we have one Helm chart from Argo, which is just their Argo Workflows Helm chart. And it, it's nice, but again, it's also the worst. So they released a version two days ago, uh, a minor version bump um, of their Argo workflows chart. So it was from like 0.22.9 to 0.22.10. The only change was that they updated the underlying Argo app version from 3.4.4 to 3.4.5. So again, minor upgrade, but when you go to the change log for the Helm chart, it says upgraded from 3.4.4 to 3.4.5. Seems chill, easy to read. Then you go to the change log for 3.4.4 to 3.4.5, and it's like 85 commits and no explanation on like what's a breaking change or whatever, and it shouldn't be at all because it's a minor version. Yeah. And almost everything worked, but we had some regressions in how a few of our our workflows were running, like they would just start failing, and we weren't getting any errors from it. Uh, it was it was just like the workflow would fail, and then it would say errors nil, and we'd go, oh, well, not helpful. Uh, so we didn't know why it was failing. We just ended up rolling back. So there's that that issue that always comes up with abstractions of, okay, what happened here that actually broke the thing? But at the same time, we can now just check the GitHub issues, see if anyone else reports anything, wait for 0.22.11 or whatever, uh, and then when they upgrade to 3.4.6, it'll all upgrade together. Uh, but as you say, it does provide some level of just like you passing a values argument, mm -hmm. and these are the things I want to override. We had some issues with a, uh, it's been too long now for me to remember the details, but for the AWS CloudWatch agent, um, there's a Helm chart for it, but it hasn't been updated in forever, and it exposes almost nothing uh, as values. So I just ended up manually taking everything that they have in their Helm chart 
and defining it in Pulumi, so like manually writing out the daemon set and everything, just so I could pass in the correct values. Like this is very frustrating. And it makes you appreciate Helm in some respect, where you're like, it would be sure sure would be nice if I could just say, you know, Helm add and then Helm install or whatever for my Helm chart, and now everything works. Or in Pulumi, you're just saying, here's the name, here's the version, any values, and you're done. Uh, so it is nice. On the other hand, there are strict, uh, there are things that are strictly for templating. So at a previous company, uh, I w worked with Customize. And that one was just templating, where you could have like, here's our base template with all our default values. Here's the overrides for staging. Here's the overrides for production. Uh, we were multi-region, so it's like, here's the overrides for Ireland. Here's the overrides for US East. And uh, each layer is just providing either overrides or inheriting the defaults. So boy, does it get overwhelming. But when you have, again, like 30 services, you're trying to follow best practices, keep things consistent, it can be useful. Um, but that one is what I would describe as strictly templating. So you would run that, you could run it locally, and all it did was just take all of your template files, you'd run, use the customized CLI, and it would just say, this is what the resulting configuration files will look like. And so in that respect, you can provide an abstraction that potentially is useful, but also abstractions are tough. Like they make things potentially more difficult to, to follow. Sometimes duplication, especially for noobs like me, is nice. Yeah, yeah, I, I just find it like slightly, I guess the whole granddad vibe of I've, every time I've like switched over or like as I'm progressing in my ops journey, I'm getting farther and further away from the truth and I just having a hard time accepting that because I am used to like going bare metal to the machine, installing the software and running things to, all right, now I'm running things in the cloud and I have a load balance or whatever to, okay, now I have whatever OpenShift platform for running things. Then now I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, I have EKS running my Kubernetes oh, there's like these Helm charts that are hosted and published by another whatever product that you just assume works, which I guess is not a lot different than like yum install or whatever. Yeah. But those you always expect to just work. Any actual binary installations and such, there's no, you don't really ever do rollbacks on things like that. You always just worry about your own application breaking. Um, and then I'm now in part of this world where I have to just now hunt for these things and the resources are just sort of spread over everywhere because they'll say, oh, just use this and do this with Helm and it'll work. But you don't really find out how Helm hooks into the life cycle and everything right off the bat. You have to go read and understand and understand each layer as it works. And I'm just, just not having a good time. It just, it's, <laughs> it's not as easy for understanding or diving deep. It's just... It's easy to do if you just have a blank infrastructure given to you and you're like, yeah, okay, run these set of commands, things work, which is a nice UX. But as an ops person, I'm like, I, what did I do? What instructions happened here? Right. What APIs did I hit? What network calls or databases were written to? No idea. As a dev-heavy DevOps person, I'm fine with it. <laughs> as an <Fine>. ops-heavy <laughs> DevOps person, I, I think you, you represent a different set of concerns. You're like the, the DBA coming in and being like, these devs, they're not handling this correctly. Probably, Look yeah. at all these schemas, they don't make any sense. 
I'm sure that's how DB has probably felt about like ORMs. Oh yeah, for but, sure. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean you're no longer writing like these whatever? God, what were those even called? Not the views. Uh, there's another funky term for functions that you could write in data. Well, there's triggers. Triggers, and there was something else. Can't remember. Whatever. Uh-huh. Whatever. Like, in, they're like you're doing the application level. The database can do it so much better. Why don't you do it? Uh, <laughs> so that's what I. Think that's what I'm like, sort of feeling like. But uh, you know, whatever. In six months, I might be here with like my hat backwards, which I don't have a hat yet, but I might. And be a lot like, can yeah, happen in six months. A lot can happen. <laughs> I'm like, I'm one of the cool kids. I use only products starting with K. Kubernetes, customized Carpenter. Uh, <laughs> Why'd you say that name? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kistio. Uh, 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 <laughs> don't worry what old what's old is new again we keep learning that yeah. so <laughs> pretty <laughs> pretty soon they're going to be running everything on-prem in a closet uh it might still be kubernetes but it'll be running in a closet right local uh, zones yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um but okay you you did say you did say the dragon k word so i will mention carpenter Yes. Uh, because I mentioned it before, and it was strictly to complain about it, and that's what I'm going to do now. Um, not necessarily because it's deserved, but just because it was installed. Again, I mentioned we have th- like super simple requirements uh, at, at my current company, and there's a way of responding to load, which, as I described earlier, there's EC2, and that if you're in AWS, you have like imagine some servers. And then you have a auto scaling group around those. And when they get to a certain condition, you either want more or you want less of them. And the auto scaling group will take care of that for you. But you just have like EC2 and you're running stuff on it. And then you can say like, okay, now I'm in Kubernetes, which means that I now have this abstraction layer of node groups, which is a collection of EC2 instances. And then those node groups can be scaled. Things can be spread across node groups. Node groups can, yeah, be either uh, I can talk about topology in a different episode, but mm-hmm. the the point is you have another layer above that. But imagine, dear listener, that you were thinking, "Wow, this delay in how long it takes for some pods to be going independent, and then for the cluster autoscaler to look at those pending pods and say, "Are you able to be scheduled anywhere?" And they go. Nah, doesn't look like it. And the uh, Kubernetes tells it like, yeah, I'm trying to schedule these. And it's like, okay, I'll just wait. And then it waits a minute and it says, "Mm, now I'm I'm scaling things up. And then scales things up. So it took, I don't know, a minute. If that's too long, Carpenter's your guy. Because the thing is, the way the autoscaler group works is it uses, or sorry, cluster autoscalers, it leverages the autoscaling groups. It says, your uh, desired is two. I'm setting your desired to three or four, or whatever the maximum is. Uh, and then the autoscaling group says, oh, my desired count has changed. I'm going to go get myself some more instances. And then it creates some more instances. So that process, there's a bit of a delay there. And Carpenter subverts all your expectations and just says, I'm going to fetch you a EC2 instance. And so it sees a pending pod and goes, I'll get you an instance. And then another one shows up and says, I'm going to get you an instance, which in our case, where we're using cron jobs across multiple organizations, that means like 40, 50, 200 
pods suddenly show up and Carpenter's just grabbing EC2 instances by the bucket load and throwing them into the cluster. And it's like, no, that, like if you just waited 30 seconds, all of these would have been scheduled. <laughs> so this was way overzealous. Uh, but it is very flexible, which can be nice. So one of the limitations with using autoscaling, uh, as is typically done the way I described it, is that it needs consistent sizing in a single um, autoscaling group, which are associated with node groups, um, to appropriately scale. So it's if you have different sized instances, apparently it causes problems with figuring out how many it should ask for. But because of the way that pods work, they ask for a certain amount of resources. It can say, how much can fit on one of these uh, existing instances? How many more would I need? And it just asks for the right amount. And then those scale up, those get scheduled. If there's extra space, it tries to like rotate uh, pods out, or sorry, instances out, where it'll say like no more scheduling on this one. And then as long as that one's not needed within a certain amount of time, it'll get rid of it. Uh, but that requires a certain size. Whereas Carpenter, again, because it's circumventing all of the standard processes, it's just saying, you need a T2 micro, I'll get you one. And then, oh, you need a M5 large, I'm gonna get you one. And it pairs them up really quick, which is great. But then if you have things, this is the issue, one of the main issues that we ran into, besides the fact that it was a total just like graveyard of unknown status clusters because our Kubelet uh, kept dying and the control plane didn't know what was going on and then we had all these unregistered nodes sitting around just in unknown state. So besides that, one of the uh, issues that came up was when we're trying to do monitoring, no longer can you use like the autoscaling groups. So the autoscaling groups are a really useful abstraction in CloudWatch to be able to say how many instances are in that cluster right now or in that uh, node group right now seeing what the scaling behavior looks like. Uh, you can aggregate really well to say like, oh, all of our small instances have a certain collective um, like uh, CPU utilization or whatever uh, versus when you just have 40, 50, 70 random EC2 instances, you're like, how do I aggregate these? How do I have any notifications on this? Uh, because yeah, it's just all these orphaned, unrelated, um, bits of resources. So I have a negative first impression, but I also, to be fair to Carpenter, think it was very early stage and probably still is. Mm -hmm. um, but it is cross-cloud, like it's useful. It's able to be used, as far as I know, across different cloud providers. So um, if you are concerned about being cross-cloud or just you're thinking, oh, this only applies to AWS, it, it is supported in other areas as well. Um, but yeah, it's for like this niche, high-performance, like low low delay scaling uh, and I'm not quite sure where that fits in uh, at least not in like the normal web app world that I live in yeah it works great in machine learning world ah here we go this third, guy this guy yeah carpenter apologist over here <laughs> <laughs> yeah because sometimes we have these uh, clusters that need to do distributed whatever computing and those jobs can take like three hours four hours and job goes into the scheduler and the scheduler's like, oh, I got, you want a bunch of M5 2X largest? I got none, sorry, bro. <laughs> and uh, Carpenter's like, no, I got you. Comes back, creates one, and it's like, here you go. And then the application that runs on it might be like, hmm, maybe I would like one or two more to parallelize this because whoever set this up has the right labels and paid for this. And they're like, okay, cool, here you go, two more. 
and uh, I don't know at what point they get killed or if they get killed I'm sure they do um, but yeah once the queue is all done and good then it's like yeah cool we're done but because yeah it'll take like three or four hours the annoying part however is a lot of machine learning stuff is like storage constraint as well so if we create an instance and say all right we need like 800 gigs of space and your EBS volume is like 810 it might not schedule it on there because there's like on system storage or whatever so you have to be like 780 and it's like okay okay I got you I know where to schedule this and such which necessarily isn't a terrible problem but now you have to like think about these things where if you're storing logs on the server maybe it's using more swap because the memory is too high you're just kind of stuck there with like this kind of nonsense yeah um, but you know what it's a carpenter maybe it measures twice cuts once kind of thing <laughs> maybe it's Jesus who knows yeah we don't know father was it? no Jesus was a carpenter oh okay then there you I'm go I'm pretty sure a Jewish carpenter cool yeah JC yeah yeah, that's him. <laughs> JC the JC. Uh, so, so yeah, I was planning to talk a bit about scheduling in the, I guess, detailed discussion that will be upcoming now. Because yes. um, it has been relevant. There's a lot of dials to turn with respect to scheduling. And uh, it's a wild world, but you touched on it briefly there. There are constraints. And Kubernetes is smart enough to not just try to schedule something that doesn't fit on an instance uh, or any sort of compute, whatever you're using, uh, which is nice. So yeah. if if the pod knows I need 10 gigs and it looks at some available server space and says, uh, oh, there's only four, it doesn't just try to stuff it in there and then have it crash. It gets smart enough to handle that for you. So again, that abstraction layer over top of everything, which um, some people love uh, or at least appreciate. Mm -hmm. I'm on the appreciation side and some right. people are grumpy old men like some people yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> not to point fingers no no, no. or canes okay <laughs> uh, but yeah as a summary we've covered what kubernetes is yep if you want to know more about containers which will be very helpful uh for you in general in life go listen to it maybe your marriages will succeed because of it uh we covered that we covered uh how resource allocation could scale up and down using carpenter we covered Customize, Helm. Customize and Helm, yeah. Microservices. Helm, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and then this is just a brief overview, like a brief history of time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, if you want more details, which you will, because I don't know how can you sleep with yourself if you don't. Yeah, if you got this far, you want more details. You do, really do. You must. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So come for future episodes yeah. and listen to our do-betters if you did better on them or not. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll make this quick. Okay. Unlike the intro, mm. I was actually thinking about it. Uh, this is immediately not going to be quick now. I was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it earlier today. Um, that it's nice that a lot of the recommendations, like the cool, fun, interesting, frustrating stuff, tends to be more tech fa uh, focused, mm -hmm. and then the do beggars are at the very end. So it's like at least if people are here for tech talk. It's not like we're annoying them too much, I hope, at the beginning, because it is usually about tech. And then it's only at the end when it's like, okay, I re super don't care yeah. uh, about your to-do list. <laughs> so, like, yeah, we throw that at the end. I still enjoy it, but uh, I'm glad it's at the end because, I don't know, I have some podcasts. Like, I used to listen to the Frank and Happy Hour. 
I did not care about their stupid music recommendations and things. Um, so I just turned it off as soon as I got to picks. Like, it's not related. This is not why I listen to the show. So uh, apologies if you hate all of my recommendations at the beginning. That was 24 minutes of your life you won't get back. Um, my bad. Unless you just somehow figure out a time machine thing. Yeah, you could do that. Let us know. Yeah. Uh, be on the show. That'd be cool, yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess you already would have been. But <laughs> uh, anyway, so um, did better. I did book something uh, with my girlfriend. So I, nice. it's, she, technically, she did all the work. I showed up uh, the other day, and she was just like, uh, I think we should do this. Does this sound good? Uh, this is how much it costs. I'm like, oh, okay. She's like, yeah, can you like book it? Um, so, yeah, anyway, that's what we're doing. Nice. And might do some more of that. We'll see. Not being too specific because it's the internet. Yes. Uh, something I want to do better on is I, I found a tab. Or I found a tab. That's a stupid website. I found a website and I kept it in tab. Right. As I do. Stored it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with a list of where when all of the different um, parks and hikes and trails and things are available to reserve, at least like the less common or the less easy to reserve ones. So like the West Coast Trail that I mentioned a few times, like when those will become available for booking, according to this person anyway. Uh, and so a few of them are still a while off, but I want to make a list of at least 10 hikes or places I want to go to. So that's actionable. I'm like, I can count these. Are there 10? No, you haven't completed your, your assignment. Um, of yeah, hikes I want to do or places I want to go and then just start trying to slot them into some weekends and just be like, okay, you need to book these now because uh, I think once I have a proper to-do list set up, I'll actually do it. When it's very general of just like make sure you book stuff, I'm like, yeah, maybe eventually. Uh, so making that more specific. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I've still got to do my RSP forms because um, I still, you know, haven't. But uh, nobody cares. I, I barely care. I thought about just backing out of my do beggars, but there are there is one thing I should do. So that's right. That. Yeah. It's RSP. Well, yeah. They. I need to file to the CRA that. Whoopsie Daisy. I over contributed, and also here's another form that includes documentation that says, "I swear it was an accident. Please uh, don't charge me." Because it'd be great if they didn't. It would be great. Yeah. 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 At least I don't think I need to do anything with holding tax, which I was really worried about. That'd be. That'd be steep. Nobody likes that. No. But what about you? What do you got going on? Well, last episode, forever ago, whenever that was, yeah. I said I will listen to more machine learning podcasts and YouTube uh, stuff, which uh, I've been doing. So, yay. Um, some of those things make sense. Others, not so much. Uh, but it's kind of cool that the company now I'm working for has a lot of content like that where they went on a couple of shows and stuff because the thing they're trying to solve isn't like super abundant. Uh, so I went and I was like, oh, hey, I know this guy. Uh, and I listened to some stuff which made sense and it makes more sense as I'm starting to work more. Um, and I said I would do more stretching, which I am um, because everything else hurts anyways. And I'm just at this point, I, there's no structure in my gym routine anymore. It just, it's floating. I think I presume it'll happen for another few weeks while other things in my life sort out uh, because gym is now on the back burner. It's no longer a high priority item, uh, but I'm sure as soon as summer rolls around, it will become one. And for doing better, uh, I'm going to continue the machine learning stuff. Uh, although I'm putting, I'm going to prioritize that lower. I'm going to prioritize Kubernetes and uh, container stuff more just because 
I am doing a lot of that on my, or my team has a lot of that infrastructure set up. And in one week, um, I have seen enough that I'm like, if I don't start now, it'll be like a year before I understand all of this. And they're already like, would you, maybe you should like investigate this. Maybe you should just change that. A small, simple feature that I've been looked into or I've been asked to look into is, can we just swap out a network load balancer with an application load balancer in our stack? And I'm like, the implications for that could be crazy high. You're just asking me to switch layer four with seven out of nowhere. And uh, they're like, yeah, just look into it. And I'm like, I don't understand anything about this product or scale or anything. But the fact that they're starting to trust me with things like that right out of the box is either they just don't have people, which they kind of don't, uh, other people are doing things, or they just think I'm like really qualified, which now I feel bad about. So we'll find out. So the only way to fight with that is to work extra hours so they don't actually find out and I actually deliver and then I'm like, cool. And I'm like, yeah, don't worry about it. That was easy. Give more work. <laughs> uh, and then get stressed and then go on a vacation last minute. But it, not to speak from experience. No, this has never happened in the past. I don't burn myself out. It's never happened three times. <laughs> no. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, uh, best of luck with your... Uh, initial year of focusing on work. Um, my initial year of focusing not on work is turning out okay. Uh, I'm appreciating the the little swapsies we've done. Mm-hmm. Where uh, yeah, last year I was all about work, and now it's your turn, and Yay. you're all about travel, and now it's my turn. <laughs> Good balance, yeah. perfectly balanced, as all things should be. So. Nice. Yeah, I can talk to you about Kubernetes, and you can talk to me about Montreal. Sounds good. Nice. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.